When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody and welcome to Invested. I'm Danielle Town. Happy summer. For our August break, uh, we're playing two really (laughs) from the vault episodes, but they're very timely for what's going on in the market and a lot of questions we have right now, which are what do we think about non-company investing, specifically commodities. So here is part one of that conversation we had back in 2015. Enjoy. Hey, everybody. This is Phil Town. This is Danielle Town. And we're here to talk about investing at the podcast Invested, where we're going to... Podcast, the yeah. one podcast. <laughs> and I have an announcement actually this week. Oh, very good. I what? Just, I just launched my Invested with Danielle Instagram. So check me out on Instagram, um, Invested with Danielle, all one word. And I'm going to be doing various sort of company research, whatever I'm looking at, show you guys what I'm up to. It'll kind of be related to the podcast, but it won't only be stuff that's on the podcast. So check it out and um, and send questions about the podcast, as always, to questions at investedpodcast.com. Very good. And, and Danielle's going to bring those questions out and we will build a podcast around the good ones. So uh, and <laughs> if you <laughs> not the you dumb ones, all of your questions, the thing is, I have to say, people ask me questions all the time and they, and they always preface it with this is so dumb, but And I go, you don't understand. I know nothing. Like, ask me all of your questions that you think are dumb. That's the entire point of what we're doing because there's so much information out there that doesn't answer that stuff. So send all of your dumb questions. Send all of your dumb, don't send any smart questions, only dumb questions. Yeah, only dumb questions to Danielle. And if you have any smart questions, we'll ignore them. So we just, we'll just we go on. we make fun of you for knowing way too much. <laughs> and that's not a bad thing to start with here is that knowing way too much can get in your way. Because a lot of the times, um, the things that you know may not be true. One of the things that Charlie uh, Munger, uh, who, if you don't know it already, is Warren Buffett's uh, partner for the last 50 years, and a brilliant guy. And he said that what made Buffett and Charlie successful more than any other thing is knowing what they don't know, which is really, you know, that's actually kind of hard to figure out. You know, what is it you don't know? And the good thing about, I think, our podcast is that Danielle doesn't know anything. So it's almost and I perfect. I firmly adhere to that. <laughs> <laughs> so... So we can't have any dumb questions because all we're looking for <clears throat> is wh- where's the boundaries of our ignorance? And uh, and we're, we're, we're actually really serious about that. It's, it's all about knowing what you don't know. And since most people don't know anything much about investing, um, there pretty much are no dumb questions. You can just pile them in here and we'll be happy to go over them. 
And today, I'm going to be saying that in two years that I don't know anything, even though I will have learned a lot in those two years. One hopes, I hope, um, because to me, like that's the point. I'm always saying, you know, this is a practice. I'm trying to make it. I like that a practice, a daily, a daily practice, which, which to me carries the feeling of innocence, like the feeling of constantly. Hey, I'm not an expert. I'm learning. I'm practicing. I'm trying this out. I'm gonna try. One day it's gonna work. The next day it's not gonna work. Um, hopefully not with real money. Due to rule number one, don't lose money. <laughs> well, you, you know, you, what you're saying is such an important point because people in my world n- need to feel like they're experts. Like they're people are bringing them I their money. Me. Yeah, the financial advisors, you know, and and uh, and money managers are are required to be experts. And gosh, it's it's so, it, it creates a kind of an emotional barrier. It does, exactly. You know, when you have to be an expert all the time. It uh, does. It, it, I think that's actually why I'm a little bit attached to the idea of not knowing everything or even not knowing much at all because it puts you in a state of constant learning. Yeah, and so if you go to an it's advisor. It's interesting than being an expert anyway. Well, and if you go to an advisor, I mean, think about what would happen if you walked into an advisor and the guy was like, oh, I don't know. Um, yeah. You know. <laughs> You'd be like, oh, I'm really glad I came to your office. You yeah, go to, right. You go down to the street and somebody will say, I know everything. And you, ah, oh, finally, I'm with the right guy. And um, it might turn out after 20 or 30 years that the first guy was just being honest about the entire profession. Um, it is a remarkable profession. Munger once said it's they, that he and Buffett wouldn't be as rich as they are if there weren't so many smart people doing so many stupid things. <laughs> so it, you, you you go to the experts, and unfortunately, in this industry, um, it's a kind of the the experts have no clothes sort of a deal, you know, and they're all singing pretty much the same tune. And it's so full of contradictions in, uh, in, the, in the way they invest in money in modern portfolio theory. That you know, it's not a it's not a bad assumption that your advisor doesn't know anything. Probably a really good sales guy. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Well. Boy, I'm going to get some hate mail on that one. Woo! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so what we've been talking about are what people have, what people invest in other than the stock market, um, and we've been going through gosh a bunch of different things. Last time we did uh, currencies and gold and silver. So I think our last one on the list is commodities. Which yeah, is a whole bag of worms. A whole bag of worms, but you know we all know about commodities because of Hollywood. Hollywood always teaches us so well, and so they well. they taught us about commodities in this movie with Eddie Murphy back in the, I guess it was in the seventies, called or when was that? It was Trading Trading Places is the name of the movie, where Eddie Murphy had to be the eighties. Okay, eighties. So Eddie Murphy, yeah, it had to be the eighties. Right and Aykroyd, and, and exactly a classic Christmas movie. Exactly, we should watch it again because now, <laughs> after this podcast, you will know so much about commodities that the whole, you know, the whole sort of flow of the plot line will make tremendous sense to you because now you get it. I remember zero from that movie about commodities. I well, believe there were some at some point. Oh, it was hugely central to the plot, right? Because here you got these two rich guys who are, are, I guess they're brothers, and they're cornering the markets on everything. And I think the main commodity in the movie was was orange juice, orange juice futures. 
And there was this, it turns out that the rich guys, of course, this is a Hollywood movie. So the rich guys were only rich because they were cheating. And they they were stealing the information about uh, how much orange juice was going to be produced, right? They would get the, the Department of Agriculture report on orange juice before anybody else would get it. And then they would place their, their commodity trades and then they would make a fortune. And um, Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd picked off the report gave them the wrong information, and they got crushed. <laughs> and they laughed. Oh, it was a joke. But the whole plot line, <laughs> the plot line was that, was that Eddie Murphy was just this street ripoff artist who, who was nothing, and they made a bet that basically said, I can make that guy into a genius, and the other guys, no, you can't. And, you know, it, it was a little bit of uh, the, was it Pygmalion? You know, My Fair Lady, that one? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A little bit of that with a real nasty side to it. So um, anyway, Eddie Murphy gets back at them. And um, and what the what they were basically doing is they were trading commodity futures, which we're going to get to in a little bit. But the main thing is that commodities are different from other kinds of investments uh, in it in that they are. OK, here's here's a Wall Street jargon. You ready? They're fungible, fungible. <laughs> And what that means is that it doesn't matter who made it. A orange juice in a in a glass, an orange juice in a glass. Is that it doesn't matter where it came from. It's orange juice in a glass, and oil in the barrel. Uh, gold bars are gold. Gold's gold. Silver, silver. Wheat's wheat. You know, it has various you know ratings, but it's basically it's just wheat. So a fungible thing means that you can take one bucket of it and deliver it and nobody's going to care where it came from if it's the quality they ordered it's just exchangeable really easily yeah, exchangeable exchangeable so what that means is that a lot of the things that drive price in other markets um, like with real estate it's location 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 with stocks it's all about the moat which could be the brand and the secrets and the the switching moat we've talked about um, those things affect the price dramatically, right? If a, if a company like Burlington Northern is the only company that has railroad tracks that'll go from Long Beach to Chicago, then Burlington Northern has a tremendous uh, uh, moat or a tremendously durable competitive advantage, and that should increase its value to whoever is messing with it, right? It's not, Burlington Northern stock is not fungible with just anybody else's railroad. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. But... Commodities are fungible, which means that the price of these things is pretty much entirely about supply and demand and the expectations around supply and demand. So, for example, there's a market in cotton. And I think we've talked about this uh, particular company a while back called Gildan, which is a Canadian company that make cotton T-shirts. And back uh, when the Arab Spring thing started, the commodities traders who were trading in the cotton market were trading cotton prices essentially for the future um, saw that the Arab Spring was starting in Egypt building up to this revolution and they thought wow um, Egyptian cotton might not get picked this year in which case there's going to be a shortage of cotton and that so supply is going to be less than demand, which means price is going to go up. And so in anticipation of the price going up, they the guys that owned the right to cotton, let's say in the United States, they refused to sell at the normal price of 85 cents. They wouldn't sell it because it looks like, wow, I'm going to be sitting on a gold mine here in a while 
because Egyptian cotton is going to go down the tubes. And so just like anybody else, they would say, well, okay, you want to buy it from me. I understand you've got a t-shirt company, Mr. Gildan, but I don't want to sell it to you at 85 cents because this is worth a lot to me. This is going to go way up. So they raised their prices for the delivery of cotton to Gildan in the future. And they raised those prices up to $2.25 a pound from 85 cents. A oh, yeah. Gigantic. And so all of a sudden, Gildan was in trouble because now it can't make T-shirts to deliver to Walmart at the right price because now it's cotton is costing too much. So the president of Gildan came out and told the market, uh, we're going to have we're going to lose money for the next year or so. And the reason he said it was only for a year or so is because he knew that if cotton prices were at two dollars and twenty five cents, like if, if in fact Egyptian cotton got burned down, then what would happen in Georgia is that they would plant cotton all over the state of Georgia, where right now they're planting some corn and soybeans. They're going to take that out and put in cotton and the prices will come down to a historical normal level because supply will eventually balance against demand pretty quickly in, in these markets. So supply and demand is really a, fun, a, a, a critical aspect of commodity prices. Um, and mm, by the way, we haven't really talked about what all they are. Commodities. What commodities are. Yeah, let's talk about that. Um, yeah. I remember pork bellies, which I think is hilarious. Yeah, bacon, baby. <laughs> because I always think, what about the rest of the pig? <laughs> Non-belly parts, too? I mean, I, I genuinely don't understand. Why is it only pork bellies? Those parts are, the rest of it's free. All the rest of it's free. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. Those... I clearly don't eat pork because I have no idea what part of the pig people eat. Yeah, since wait a second, I've been to all the New York restaurants where everybody's obsessed with pigs and and eating all of the sections. They eat all of the sections. They do. They eat all the sections. And pork bellies is a, a an indicator of overall price of of the hog. So it's a bit like um, there's different varieties of crops like in producing wheat. But there's a wheat price and everything else is based around that price. Okay. So same thing with uh, with. Well, commodities essentially are stuff you can get your hands on um, that are completely interchangeable. Are fungible. Yeah, fungible. So rice is a commodity. Wheat is a commodity. Cotton's a commodity. There's there's dozens of commodity markets. Silver and gold are commodities. Uh, oil is a commodity. Gas, natural gas. Like tends to be like farm-based stuff like is there a fish commodity no probably not because fish have to be fresh and right there's a fish market but but it's all the the thing with that makes a commodity market a market is that you have a requirement for future delivery and um and so let's say you're a you're making pizza and you need a lot of flour to make pizza for your company, your Domino's or somebody like that, you're going to want to be sure that you can lock in that price of flour um, down the road, six, nine months. You, you want to, if the price of flour is acceptable to you right now, you may want to lock it in. So you can properly budget for your company. Precisely. Because you don't want that cotton thing to happen, right? right. You don't want to suddenly it goes up. So you might go to the market and say um, you might and the market, by the way, exists in a place. It's in, in Chicago, predominantly um, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. And if if you ever want to go have an interesting afternoon, go take a tour of the of CME. 
in Chicago. It's it's the Wild West. You can get <clears throat> you get to watch all of these guys, and it's almost all guys um, in pits. Well, they call them pits. They're they're standing around in a crowd, and that crowd is called a pit, and, and that's because you can get some elevation on it. And so they're all standing around in a crowd, and they're wearing different colored sport coats. Some guys are yellow, some's red, some's green, some's blue, some have stripes um, that indicate the markets that they're trading in. And they go into this, these pits, and they're, they've, they've had to buy a place to, to be in there. You had to buy that guy's place. And they trade these markets, cotton, silver, gold, and they do it by yelling at each other. So it's, is that it, really it's still how it's done today? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's chaos in there. It's awesome. It she goes in, computerized? No, it's, it's, there's so much action in it that, and obviously it is computerized because those, but ultimately those trades get computerized and put out into the market really, really quickly. But these guys are market makers. They're out there to, to actually make the flow of prices smooth. And yeah, there, there's definitely people involved. Um, and so, is that the only commodities exchange that one in Chicago? That's the main stock one. There's markets all over the place. Yeah, yeah, they're all around the world. But the the big one is Chicago, and then there's another one in New York um, where they trade a few oh, different kinds one. of commodities. Okay. Um, so anyway, you get you get this huge range of stuff. So commodities are something you can get your hands on, and and ultimately, it's the the market was created. Let's say again by this uh, by this baker who makes pizza who needs to get flour at a set price. So he wants to make a deal with a farmer. So he might go to a farmer and say, look, I'll I'll make a deal with you that when you deliver me the wheat, uh, it's going to be $3 a bushel or whatever. And the farmer looks at this and says, well, I might want to do that deal because who knows, I might have uh, a huge crop this year and prices might and everybody else might and prices might go down like a brick or who knows what will happen. So he's going to lock a price farmers in. Farmers worry about weather and yeah. plagues and animals dying and all the variables that they deal with. Exactly. In fact, there's all kinds of variables in the delivery of almost every commodity. Like orange juice growers worry about a freeze, right? I mean, all it has to do is drop down three degrees, and all of a sudden you don't have any orange juice. Uh, you don't have any oranges on your tree that are any good. Um, gold gold miners are worried that they have that there's still gold in that in that mine. They don't know for sure, right? They're sure. they're they're rolling the dice. Oil drillers. I mean, look at what happened with oil drillers, right? They're they're drilling oil like crazy, and they think they found nirvana. And the next thing you know, oil prices dropped from a hundred dollars a barrel to thirty five today. And uh, and now your bonanza turns into a disaster because you can't drill it at thirty five dollars a barrel and make any money. So these guys take a lot of risk and in, involved in delivering this product, and they want to lock in prices for future delivery. So this farmer and this baker get together and they lock in for a future delivery, a set price. And this was the beginning of of a commodity market. Um, somebody thought, wow, I could actually get in the middle of this deal and, because this baker may not know the right farmer. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. So since this stuff is all fungible, if I can collect a group of farmers together to get delivery of wheat, um, and I can get a group of bakers together to take delivery of wheat, I might be able to make a commission by being in the middle of this deal. And I can broker this deal between these two groups, one that wants the flour, one that wants to to sell the wheat. 
And that was how this whole thing began. Um, and ultimately, it's resulted in a tremendous um, value to the consumer. Because think about it. I mean, if the farmer can unload his wheat at a consistently decent price and the baker can, can buy his flour at a consistently decent price, that, that means that they can uh, reduce their margins that they have to have to make a profit because their consistency is there. Otherwise, they'd have to be sure that they had a big enough profit on the good years to make up for the bad years. And that would mean pizzas would cost more money. So ultimately, this is really beneficial uh, for these guys to be in the middle making the market in the commodity pits. Um, however, they have this one little problem, and that is because it's so oriented toward the um, the expectations of future supply and demand, the prices can be extremely volatile. That means they can go really, really up fast and really, really down fast. So as a as a kind of a bucket to put money in, um, like a like stocks and bonds and real estate, commodities are an interesting bucket. Real estate doesn't move around very fast in terms of its prices. Stocks can move around pretty fast. Bonds can move around a little bit, but you got the protection. They can move around a lot, but they've got that. You got the protection of being able to just wait till the bond uh, expires and then get your money back. But commodities, whew, it can really move quickly. So a lot of people like to trade commodities who are sort of gamblers. You know, it's a really good market for gamblers to play in. Do they move based on news coming out? Like what's making these massive changes happen so quickly? Yeah, rumors could could rumors. cause it. <laughs> just just a, a rumor. That that, awesome. That sounds like a great way to lose your money. Oh, it's a great way to lose your money. You you can the the volatility here is enormous. Um, plus, when you trade these things, you can do it with a lot of leverage. You can get like ten to one leverage. So then when it moves, it's really, really going to have a huge impact on you. So commodities traders, and by the way, the reason that, that there's all pretty much just guys in the pit is because it, it's really physical. It's a, it's a physical thing. You know, people get really intense and really excited and really scared and really greedy and really everything. So it, it really helps to be 220 pound ex linebacker from uh, University of Notre Dame to be in that pit. And not get all pounded right, around. All right, all uh, right. I don't like that at all, but fine. We're going to let that one alone. Women can do that job very well, but we don't have to discuss it right now. All right, fair enough. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. I doubt that the 220-pound linebacker is really pushing people around because if he were, he would probably be fired. But, okay, fine. Maybe being tall helps. I'll give you that. Okay, fair enough. So, uh, <laughs> I won't go there anymore. So... Um, here we have this market being created originally by the, the people who wanted the end use of the product and the people who were producing the product. And then now we've got pieces of paper that are getting in the middle, right? So these derivative markets have created, which are futures markets. And ultimately, in the stock market, stock options came out of the uh, this notion that you could trade commodities. So stock options became a derivative. You just said a bunch of stuff. I did. So we were talking about commodities 
and how they were traded. And then you right. started talking about derivatives and you said futures as though futures are different than commodities. And then you said that options came out of derivatives in the commodities market. Okay, let me back up a step. So when we have a baker and a farmer getting together, they make a contract. And the contract is a piece of paper that spells out what each party is required to do. And on one side, you have the obligation, like the, the farmer is essentially selling the contract. He's selling his wheat. And he has obligated to deliver the wheat. And the um, baker is going to buy the wheat. So he has a right to buy the wheat at this price. And the farmer is obligated to sell it at this price. In the future. In the future. All right, so it's for September delivery. Um, I agree to sell you uh, uh, this much on a per bushel basis, $33 a bushel or whatever. And the baker uh, agrees he'll pay for that. And he might pay the farmer a little bit up front to, to cover that, to make sure that you have a real contract, there's something delivered. So the key thing is you have, <clears throat> you have created a new financial product when you do this. You, you have the wheat, which is going to be sold to the baker, which is one thing. That's the what we call the underlying uh, product or the underlying um, object. And then you have a piece of paper where a farmer agrees to deliver to the owner of the piece of paper this wheat at that price. And what that means is that let's say that wheat prices were at $3 and suddenly go to $6. This baker is now, let's say that, you know, what happened is a really bad storm came in and it froze a bunch of wheat and they had terrible rain and or didn't have enough. And now they don't have as big a wheat crop. So wheat prices are going up faster and faster and faster because of a limited supply. And you have this fixed demand. And now somebody's not going to get all the wheat they want. So the price goes up. Okay. All right. So now this baker has this right to buy this wheat at $3 when wheat is selling for $6. That right is very valuable to that baker, right? Sure. Now, $6. Yeah, but what if he what if he was really sort of just he really kind of he really kind of con contracted to get more wheat than he really needed. And he was sort of hedging his bets. Maybe he was going to store some for a little while. What he could do is sell the paper mm -hmm. to someone else who needs wheat really badly. Maybe you could sell that paper for $7, mm -hmm. right? And now this is something that he would have to pay $3 for, and then he's sold for seven. So he could pocket $4 for each unit of wheat that he was gonna buy. It might be worth millions and millions of dollars. So that paper is a has been derived from the underlying uh, product, the underlying stock, the underlying gold, the underlying wheat, the underlying whatever. This paper has been derived from that. It's a new financial product. And that's why it's called a derivative. It comes from this underlying thing. And so that derivative becomes tradable. Now people can trade the paper around. Got it. All right. Yep, that makes sense. There we go. The wheat's still there. Yep. It started with the baker and now it's being traded by a whole bunch of People. <laughs> <laughs> yep, people. <laughs> Men and women in Chicago. Yeah, definitely. And and uh, and those two guys in trading places are are trying to figure out where the market's going to be, and they're they're buying or they're selling. Um, 
And this is the way it all started. Rockefeller, you know, started, he, he began his career as an accountant to a, uh, to a commodities firm that was taking delivery. They would take delivery of hog bellies or delivery of oil. And yeah, um, I mean, sorry, go ahead. Uh, and he would just he just learned the markets from being the guy that was taking delivery. And then gradually they realized that they don't have to take delivery. They could sell the, the contract and get out from. A, in other words, if you don't have any place to put 50 million barrels of oil, you probably don't want to take delivery. <laughs> or, you know, what are you going to do with, um, you know, a million hog bellies or 500 million barrels of orange juice? Where are you going to put it? So you want to move this on to an end user who has room in their warehouse for this stuff. Well, that might explain why it moves so quickly, because people who are buying it don't actually want the commodity itself at all. Exactly. Like it would be very expensive to them to actually get the commodity. Exactly right. Exactly right. So the futures world is full of derivative trading where people don't actually want the, the, the underlying product at all. They just want to trade the paper. And some amazingly interesting things happen from that that, um, you know, we should talk about as we go along here. But let's continue so, with the sort of the overview. Yeah. So what happens to the baker? Let's come back to our baker who needs what were we talking about? Wheat? For Wheat. Flour? Yeah, for flour. Um, so he's, he still needs the wheat, right? So that piece of paper that he bought has now been traded a whole bunch of times. It's whatever price it is. How does he actually get the wheat in well, September? Well, let's say this baker is actually a kind of a gambler. And um, there's been this massive, massive drought in the Midwest. And it looks like wheat harvests are going to come in really low three months from now. And so the price of this contract has gone from $3 to $7 and he sells it. Now he doesn't have any way to get wheat. What he's doing is taking a gamble. He's going to collect the extra four bucks and he's going to hope that wheat comes in better than it looks like it will. He's going to hope that the crop actually comes in pretty good and that he can buy it for anything seven and below. OK, so he's sold his right to that wheat in September. He's taken his immediate profit of four bucks mm -hmm. and he's hoping basically the prices will be below seven dollars. Yep in September. Right. So all he has to do is ha just hang on to the money. He's got the $7 a bushel. He's going to hang on to that. And in September, if the price of wheat is $7 or below, he's good to go. Yeah. Solid. And if it's below, he's really good to go. What if it goes back to three? Huge score. Now, his downside is that it goes up, that it comes in way worse than he thought. Um, and he may be looking at that and just looking at historical wheat prices. He might be looking at what's happened in the past when there's been a big drought and um, and decided that the odds are pretty darn good that this is going to be seven or below and that he can handle it if it goes to eight or nine. It's going to cost him more, but he's willing to take that risk. Okay. All right. See, okay. See how that might go. So this is pretty much all about supply and demand. And... Um, and we want to talk about this real briefly in terms of we'll come back to a lot more about this, about how you actually buy this stuff um, in our next in our next discussion. But um, just real briefly, there's been an, an enormous commodity bubble in uh, in the U.S. with uh, prices rising like crazy um, all through the last. Well, up to about 2010 or so. So for from about 2000 to 2010, the price of things went way, 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 way up. 
And then, like, if you remember, at one point, oil got to be $150 a barrel. And we were looking at $4 a gallon gasoline, mm-hmm. right? But today, five years later, we're looking in a lot of places in the U.S., gasoline's a dollar seventy-five. What? Yep. Where are you getting gas for a dollar seventy-five? Oh man, I just I just saw a station. <laughs> I was going to say it's like two seventy-five, and I think that's pretty good. No, no, it's under two dollars in a bunch of places now, and it uh, may be headed lower. Okay. So, this idea of supply and demand is fundamental to uh, to the price of commodities. And a couple of things have happened right on top of each other that have caused commodity prices to crumble. Um, the first one is that China did a once in maybe multiple lifetimes build out of their infrastructure. So they took you got you know you, you know China has been accept has been draining dollars from the United States because yes. Walmart quit using. U.S. companies to build, you know, whatever they've got um, because Chinese companies could do it cheaper. So Walmart went to China and prices to the consumer came down. But what that meant is that China was receiving the income, right, receiving money from Walmart in the billions and billions and billions of dollars and from everybody else, billions of dollars going out. And and they're not selling anything to us. So it was a one-way ticket. Yeah, I thought you meant they were stockpiling dollars. But what, what you mean is they're actually replacing U.S. Uh, companies. Yeah, they're replacing U.S. companies and ending up actually stockpiling dollars. Then they took those dollars and used them, this this extra capital, and used it to build out airports, highways, cities, infrastructure, everywhere, apartments, the Chinese government just went crazy for like a decade of giant build out for a billion people. And at, at a, eventually what happens when, you, when you're not being driven by the market, which they're not being driven by the market, they're a centrally controlled economy. When you're not being driven by the market, it's really easy to overshoot your target. The market's pretty sensitive when you're making a decision on your own and I make a decision on my own. Um, you know, we can we can argue the merits of that. But at the end of the day, uh, there's no person up there in Washington, D.C. deciding what the price or how how much will be built out. Um, in China, there is a person like that, and they built out too much. And so you end up with a city that has three airports, two of which aren't being used at all. Okay. <laughs> you have 60 million finished, empty apartments. Okay. So, so how is that affecting the commodities market? Well, what happened? Remember, it's supply and demand, right? You got supply and demand driving prices. So, if you're going to do this once and forever build out, you need a lot of building supplies. You need steel, you need copper, you need uh, iron ore to get those things pulled together, you need coal, you need energy, um, you need all of these things to build things with. Got it. So they've been buying the actual commodities like crazy. Exactly. And so what happens with people who produce this stuff is that if you're if somebody's buying my wheat like crazy, um, I might try to grow more wheat. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. You know, I might go put the wheat in, you know, on a field that was and raise the price and raise the price. Exactly. So for 10 years, company like companies like BHP Billiton in uh 
in Australia who, who have iron ore mines, for 10 years, they, they tried to get ahead of the, of the demand. Like they were just trying to play catch up the whole way. Whatever they could produce, China bought. And like, holy Christmas, let's get another mine open. Let's get another mine open. And they open these mines. And it takes two or three years to get a mine open. And then because they're opening more mines, they need more equipment from, from Caterpillar and John Deere and Joy Global. And they're buying these big, huge machines to use in these new mines. And, um, and they need ships to move the iron ore to China. So the shipping companies have built more ships, more ships. Um, and and all, they're just trying to keep up with the demand that didn't exist before. This enormous demand comes out of nowhere. It's as if, imagine if you were uh, trying to provide gasoline to a city of a, of a thousand people, and all of a sudden this city went to ten thousand people. You would you would be scrambling to get to get the supply, right, or food or whatever it is. Making the bubble happen. In the exactly. Market. So here these guys go, and they're building and building and building and building and building all over the world to deliver all this stuff. And then China stopped building out. And all of a sudden, the 10x demand on, on, on supplies, on commodities, just shrunk tremendously. And it did it quickly. And now you've got this problem. We got this mine partially open. Should we finish opening it? And should we keep drilling? And, you know, these guys don't want to fire all their good employees. They, they're trying to keep people working. And they're thinking maybe they've just slowed down. So they keep it coming, keep it coming. Now supply is way higher than demand. And prices start to do what? Crash. Yeah, crate down. And that's the, the, the process we're going through right now. And you notice people notice that gold went from $1,800 an ounce down to about you know $1,000 an ounce and that oil went from $150 a barrel down to $35 a barrel and copper has dropped like a brick. And you know, it's unbelievable all this stuff that happens. Um, and that's the ups and downs of commodities. So the next time we're going to close it off here, I think the next time we're going to talk about what has happened? What kind of variety of commodities can you get? And how would you buy into commodities? Why would you buy into commodities? Let me give you a hint. Commodities tend give to commodities tend to be countercyclical. <laughs> I, I know that tone. Commodities <laughs> tend to be countercyclical to stocks. So often uh-huh. what we've seen is that stocks are going one way and commodities are going the other way. Interesting. That was a very revealing hint. Mm-hmm. We should talk about that because there may be a place in a well-structured uh, portfolio uh, long-term for commodities of some sort. Okay, let's talk about that next time. Okay, cool. Well, until then, guess it's time to go play. Thanks, everybody. Bye. See ya. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested, the Rule One podcast. If you like this episode, you can always get our show notes and more details and links to the resources we discussed at investedpodcast.com. Also, as long as you're online, head on over to investedpodcast.com slash workshop for details on an upcoming three-day live workshop that I'm hosting. All you gotta do is enter the special podcast code stockpile, that's S-T-O-C-K-P-I-L-E, stockpile, into the application form, and you guys can attend for free. So everything discussed on this show is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And it is not to be taken as investment advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only 
and I really do hope you've enjoyed it. So until next week, it's time to go play. See ya.